Our today's guest Jonah is a young and passionate UXer driven to help everyone who wants to start a career in UX. Along with having diverse experiences as a UX researcher, Jonah also mentors aspiring UXers and guides them through this uncertain and increasingly confusing world of UX. In today's episode, he shares his experience of working on interesting projects that taught him not only about his craft but soft skills that are hard to acquire. I'm your host Swikriti and this is India's first user and UX research podcast core user to UX. Welcome to the show Jona. It's really great to have you here because the kind of perspective you bring into the podcast is fresh and very versatile. And you can actually empathize with me on a greater level because you haven't had a, a decade of experience or something like that so you know the struggles of a newcomer especially in this day and age when things have changed drastically and they are still changing and despite having not to like so many years of experience your portfolio or your profile has been so versatile you have worked in so many things so that's really impressive and really fresh and would love to know more about it and i'm sure it will also help the listeners so thank you so much for your time yeah really appreciate it thank you so much for the welcome so i would like to dive in with something that is quite special to me as someone who's starting new in the field and that is your story of mentoring i would like to start from there because i want to know what drove you to become a mentor a ux mentor and what are your principles how important is it to you why are you doing so because you are quite new in the field like you felt a need to start this program so why where was this need what was the motivation sure uh, so i actually started in mentoring uh, in 2018 That's where I was working as part of the digital agency called Fathom. They're a really, really awesome, well-respected UX agency in Ireland, and they basically had a partnership with the Design Institute that run uh, in-person courses, but also their uh, online diploma, uh, which is uh, the only sort of university-accredited program out there, which is pretty awesome. And so I had the opportunity to travel to uh, be in loads of different countries doing this two-day training course, but also to be an online mentor for the uh, the digital program, the online program. And so from there, I got the sort of the confidence to share knowledge and to share uh, this information with people just getting started into UX or needing that refresher. And from there, since changing the role, um, I've kept up that mentoring. I have a really passion for helping people learn, helping people develop their careers, and helping people to learn sort of the foundations of UX. As, as you mentioned, I don't have decades of experience. I, I've only been doing this just over five, six years. But from there, my my principle is like everyone has knowledge that they can share, and it, as long as it's accessible, there's no fancy sort of status that i have it's just simply i've learned stuff people have invested in me and i want to kind of pay it forward that's kind of like my principle um and i guess uh, what's really important and what's really critical to mentoring is that you actually have practical or applied knowledge right and so you can read a lot of medium articles you can watch a lot of youtubes 
um, but often that's uh, not very applicable to the real world. It's just that one instance, that one creative wireframe that someone's taking through or, you know, it doesn't actually tell you how to do it. And so I think what's missing in a lot of online boot camps uh, or even on the roles of people trying to get into UX is that there isn't that sort of hand-holding and that sort of one-to-one guidance that I think is where I have provided value and where I hope to in the future. So yeah, that, that's my journey so far. I also went through your newsletter that is Get UX Energy and you talked about the struggles of, you know, first getting into the UX business. Now the dynamics have changed post-COVID. It's more moving and stuff like that. So anything that you learned in that domain, because it's quite fresh to you, you can deliver that message and articulate it quite well. Yeah, so I think the COVID has brought quite a lot of new things. I think the possibility of being remote and being able to connect remotely is really important. And so for for people who are uh, getting started into UX, um, there's almost like a bigger opportunity to connect with people all over the world and to try and find roles, to network, um, and so that's kind of like a, a really big, big, interesting thing that's happening. Um, I think sort of the boundaries of like, uh, I guess, like a lot of companies just didn't like having people in that weren't sat in the building. And so I think there's actually probably a, a wide amount of um, people internationally that are able to kind of get access to these companies now. So that's exciting. And I'm seeing that. I think with all the spare time and potentially spare money that people have been able to save, I think there has been a real boom in terms of people wanting to learn and wanting to get into the UX space. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a huge opportunity here for good quality learning, um, but also for um, internships. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was the sort of the, the plan behind uh, sort of my the UX energy platform is rather than just doing one-to-one mentoring that you could maybe um, share knowledge with a lot of people at once so that's that's just my aim it's pretty small effort but um it's it's hopefully gonna uh, bring some good to people wanting to learn more mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely uh, at first i thought that you know me thinking about the ux boom or many people wanting to get into ux is just my sort of bias in the sense that I am only looking at that kind of news and getting that kind of information. And so I feel that many people want to get into UX, but that's not the case. (laughs) The large quantitative data is also saying that UX, like people are getting into UX, the jobs are being created. We can debate on the quality of those jobs, but yeah, so. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge demand for the reasons I said, but also um, I think I think you know when you think back to design as a as a I guess a practice, you know there was print design, which was really common, and then the the World Wide Web kicked off, and so everyone became a web designer, and then people wanted to then become graphic designers, and I think in some ways the latest trend or like the most common thing is people to be like, oh, I'm going to be a UX UI designer. Um, and I think, I think that's fine to kind of rebrand and stuff, but um, it's still designing things creatively. And I guess I would be really, really keen to separate UX and UI um, in the sense, and, and there's a huge debate on this always, 
So yeah, that, that's another sort of rant we could have a whole podcast on, right? <laughs> and this UI UX debate, at times I think, why are we even having it? It's user, been done. Yeah, is user interface is and user experience, like both the terms tell a different story altogether, but that is yeah. happening. And, and I think the debate is that just because there's a lot of people coming from the graphic design world, people who, you know, learned Photoshop and they want to try and get more profitable, that they're just using the term UI or UX and, and not really fully understanding either, potentially. Um, that's just my, my, my perspective. And so, yeah, it's even more of an opportunity to, to help people, to educate people and to, I guess another thing uh, is like you can't, you can't learn like a practice in a boot camp or in a fortnight, right? You know, this is years and years of, of craft, right? You, you know, and so I think people need to understand that, that they can't just like, um, I, I still can't, right? Even I feel like the sort of um, imposter syndrome, right? For calling myself a UX designer or even a mentor of the topic. Um, but it, it's, it's a practice, it's a journey, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Coming to the kind of work you have done, and you have worked in a really interesting space that is sports, and the kind of engagement that is there in sports, and understanding the psychology of viewers, how well they are engaged, it's mind blowing and very tricky at the same time. So, sport book was about gamifying or making the sports content game-like for users and hence increasing the engagement and retention. So the psychology of such pleasure-seeking or instantly gratifying activities is very interesting. It's prevailing, it's everywhere, but it's kind of hard to understand. Like we as users are engaged in sports every day, but when you would ask anyone, okay, what's really happening there? Why do we like it? I mean, maybe we could rationalize as adults because that's what we learn after we become adults, but we actually don't know. Since kids, we like sports, and but we never know why do we like it. But that makes our job as users, researchers more hard because we need to understand what is happening and we have to apply that psychology out there in the market. So, what was the psychology game around when you were implementing features and stuff on sport buff? How was it? Yeah, no, great question. Um, so we, we started the company in lockdown. And so mm -hmm. at the company sport buff, we were trying to do a number of things here from a broadcasting perspective. We were trying to increase um, engagement and retention so that people would watch for longer. And this was a huge thing that broadcasters are struggling with to kind of stay relevant, especially for younger audience. Mm. And so our starting point was actually on Twitch, uh, which is really um, a highly popular platform. And there's loads of great research already done in terms of what factors are working and what are kind of key principles or psychological, I guess, items to this sort of this topic of gamification. And just, just from memory, there were some really interesting things that we learned and we were able to test, um, such as like, I guess the reasons or motivations behind why someone would, would come and watch a Twitch stream or why someone would watch a game. And there were, there was a few factors like um, people wanting to kind of improve their own skills, people wanting to get inspiration, people wanting to kind of learn. There's others of people who were just wanting to just have fun 
and just uh, do that by having a bit of, I guess, portrayal of individuality, right? Whether it's just trying to show off and say silly things um, or like have their own sort of profile, make them stand out from the crowd. Um, and there are other people that just kind of enjoy just the community aspect, um, but also kind of getting shout outs from the streamers. So all of those sort of uh, motivation factors were hugely influential when we were designing our own, then our gamification platform that was for polls, quizzes, you know, um, predictions, all of these items were to kind of boost the engagement. And we saw some really awesome stats um, in terms of people watching for longer, playing for longer, engaging with us. And so we had things like leaderboards that were really, really critical in terms of being able to see your own rank. It's that sort of portrayal of individuality. And so leaderboards is just kind of a common go-to one. But there are other things as well that we wanted to try and look at. And Susan Weinshank's uh, book about um, how to get people to do stuff. Um, And also um, Chris Nodder's sort of dark patterns book um he calls it evil design those two books are actually really quite influential uh, also so all of these factors were coming into play when we were talking about onboarding experiences when we were talking about live chat about leaderboards about how to kind of flex when you get something right how to kind of uh, play with your friends all of these aspects of creating community were, were were really numerous like there were there were quite a few that we drew upon and so all of those factors uh, contributed to people playing for longer, watching for longer, being more engaged. And I think that was the problem that people were having, uh, that broadcasters were having. Their fans just weren't watching and the younger generation were leaving. So that, that was our starting point. Um, and also another, another factor is that the stadiums were closed. And so that was kind of a huge reason why people like football is, or you know, why uh, people like these live events is because you know the, there's this huge, huge you know there's like ten thousand people chanting in a stadium, and that that had gone you know being able to sit in a pub with you know thirty people all screaming when when there's a goal or something, watching it at home with your family, all of those factors were limited, and so we were trying to bring everyone together, and so yeah, all of those aspects makes for a really fun project, and I really enjoyed my time at Swapbuff. Yeah, what I could sense is that it's quite traditional things only that have worked for us in the past and especially with the advent of Facebook that is community feeling and putting yourself out there engaged and sharing what you think about stuff that's what also worked in sport buff so any anecdote of something where you stumbled upon something and that changed the game entirely or that upped the quality of your product that simple psychological insight that just changed the game anything like that yeah so uh kind of the best example of that was when we were trying to create a sign up field that was almost what we would call the vip area and within this area there were perks there were benefits um and so when when creating this experience we wanted to really separate the people who were in and people who were out and to kind of create this sort of fear of missing out mindset. We also wanted to also uh, motivate people to kind of join um, so that they could then uh, have this sort of portrayal of individuality, right? That they could have this sort of ring around them that kind of says, I'm a VIP player, look at me. Um, And it, it all came down to clout. And so those were sort of factors that we wanted to try and introduce 
uh, we did other things as well, such as, you know, the social proof aspect for building trust. We did some interesting tests in terms of using similar colors to Twitch, but also uh, a really popular one was actually showing a number of people that were online or the number of people that had VIP status. And so using this little paywall, we were able to kind of push people into at least at a prototyping level. Uh, it wasn't live at the time that I was still there, but the, from a testing perspective, we, we were really confident in this uh, flow that we had created of just nudging people in by showing how many people were online and uh, almost giving sort of unique selling points or I guess just trust building factors um, and doing it. So that, that was kind of the more fun things to test when you know you you do your desk research you look at all these sort of psychological principles and then you think okay how can we how can we bring in things like loss aversion into the game how can we create this sort of hook model when it comes to uh, getting people to come back how can we track their progress how can we kind of launch them back into the cycle of scoring points sharing it with friends so yeah it was all i i think i enjoyed the entire sort of ecosystem of the product and thinking about like the end-to-end flows of them getting started for the first time, but then also kind of maintaining their profile and also potentially playing against other people, playing with their friends. Um, So those are all really good fun to test. One thing I'm quite curious about is the user research aspect of it. Uh, It's that uh, sports in itself is very engaging. It's been quite old, has been here for so many years, and it has always drove the crowd mad any kind of sports, even when there was no television, people were crazy about cricket or anything. So adding layers of game-like experience and more engagement in that form, that exclusivity, that fear of missing out. I want to know what was the user research saying at that time, because to me, it feels that it's already quite engaging and adding so many layers to it. and all those layers are working. It's not like it's it failed that, you know, it's already quite so engaging. I don't think people are going to want more of this. So what was the user research saying? Like you mentioned that you wanted to engage the young audience more, but when you actually hit the pulse, what was it saying? It was there a huge clamor or is it something like people didn't even realize that they need it? How was that user research journey? Oh, so um, I guess I'm going to have to like not, not be a pain here, but like it, that's a complete bias that you have, right? You think that it's engaging, but actually it wasn't at all. And so when you're thinking about a TV broadcast, uh, we increased view time by 200%. Oh, God. So when you have people actually watching for an extra 30, 40 minutes, um, yeah. kind of speaks volumes in the sense that it wasn't engaging, that people, um, you know, I think something like 75% of people over 24 actually have a second screen experience, right? So they're so bored, they're not even watching the TV, but they're on their phones scrolling, Twitter, Facebook. And so, yeah, potentially in the crowd setting, when you're this, you know, 30,000 of you in a stadium, it's, you know, you're not going to necessarily be, you know, checking your phone as much. You might be live tweeting or sending videos. Um, but in the home setting, really not at all engaging. 
And that's kind of why broadcasters bought us, you know, because we were able to deliver them more engagement. Um, as, and the example I gave of the younger generation is because they had higher expectations. They're used to more engaging stuff. You know, if you think about my parents' generation, they could just, you know, watch a 90-minute match. But the young generation have lower attention spans or at least higher expectations of entertainment. You know, we're used to uh, live chat. We're used to kind of streamer engagement. We're used to uh, playing with friends, you know. And so, yeah, it's completely different from what their actual research is saying from what we did, but also just what the industry was saying as well. So, yeah, yeah, if, if that's kind of a, an okay point to just counteract. But, you know, it's, it's good to ask these questions as a kind of test hypothesis, you know. Mm. Absolutely. It's so mind-blowing that I did not take into account the second screen experience. Right. That I do it a lot. And it's so common in my generation. I was just watching yeah. an Instagram reel that things I do that do not make sense. That is opening a laptop for a movie and then being on my phone. It's yeah, so exactly. That's hurting advertisers. That's hurting broadcasters because they have paid a lot of money to show that, you know, the, the content streaming rights, yeah. right? but people aren't watching it and so they're they're not getting return on investment and stuff so um yeah and it's that so how do we create a second phone experience to watch along that we're actually taking them back to the game how can we add a quiz on their phone that links them back to what's happening on the television so that's some of the stuff that we were working on like a second phone or a second screen quiz or a second screen predictions so yeah, that that that's the that was the fun challenges that we had. Yeah, that's pretty mind blowing because I was comparing it with my old experience, that is pre-smartphone experience with sure. what is happening now. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, it's changing. Like I'm I i, I can not remember the results. It's been a while there, but like um I think it's 75% of under 24 year olds are 75%. It's huge. There's like so many of them um or on their phones, yeah, not fully engaged. Mm -hmm. Some things can be simply around us and just simple awareness of it can change the whole game, like increase the viewership by 200%. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that second screen experience was amazing. We didn't, we didn't always get that. <laughs> so, so sometimes, you know, there were diehard fans and stuff, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Awesome. So another very impressive and very competitive and challenging sector that you have worked for is e-commerce. And now that so many players have come in, even users are quite aware of how companies are trying to sell them and those notifications after notifications, because it's, it's too ubiquitous now, even the user is quite aware of what is happening. So, what has been your experience of, for working for an e-commerce platform and actually motivating or nudging the users to buy on it? Because as users are also becoming more educated and plus the market is becoming so competitive, it is becoming quite harder and harder. As a user researcher and a UX researcher, what all did you learn and what all could we apply in the e-commerce platform? Yeah, no, great. So this was when I was working a couple of years ago, 2019, I think at, at this company Fathom, we did a lot of e-commerce projects for clients. 
Um, and I'll just give an example of one, one uh, which was Firefly. Uh, this was probably one of my favorite e-commerce projects because uh, the product was really good. Um, so it, it's basically safety equipment for children with yeah, learning difficulty, you know, cognitive or motor abilities, right? So, you know, you often have a lot of sort of free products that you can get from the government, uh, from the NHS, you know, such as hearing aids, sort of prams, such as, you know, special seats that kind of support you. And so Firefly are completely different because they sell a product. It's a premium product, but they sell a product that is bright, it's colorful, it's playful, it's it's comfortable, and it's also just is, is a nicer, more inclusive product. So these would be things like seats. These would be sort of like harnesses um, that are really bright and, and powerful. And I just recommend everyone to check it out. They're really nice products. But the way that you sell more is by looking at problems. And so we were looking at a multiple array of research that we had available. And we noticed that there was coming around Black Friday period, we noticed that there was really low conversions. And so the client brought us in to kind of have a look at that. Now, we, we could have come in here, examined the cart, examined sort of the funnel of, you know, looking at different pages and stuff. People weren't adding the product to the cart. People weren't buying it. And so we could have come up with loads of kind of smart ideas. You know, we were a consultancy, right? We could have kind of come in and given them a big document. You know, it could have been like, oh, well, this is a medical related thing. So, you know, people weren't sure. We could have been like, ah, oh, this is an emotional purchase. They're going to want to chat with family about it. Um, maybe, maybe that's too expensive. You know, $300 or something is a lot of money. We tested each one in terms of the international market, in terms of costs, and we did loads of different different bits of research. But from usability testing, we were able to identify that a lot of the international customers, specifically the American customers, uh, yeah. really struggled. So in North America, they use different terms. They have different expectations in terms of shipping or delivery. Which one is it? Um, yeah. And people had a lot of barriers it wasn't showing in dollar signs and so they just thought that this product is uh not for us we can't get this it's going to be too expensive or whatever so that then gives you more accurate um solutions that you can explore rather than just kind of having a go at being like a special consultancy being like oh here's best practice you know because we could have been we could have decreased the price you know, we could have, um, you know, we could have given it loads of white papers about why medical people are, pre you know, we could have filmed, spent all of our budget filming doctors who are saying this is good, you know, um, you know, for, you know, pediatric, you know, doctors being like, you know, this is good from a physio perspective, but we didn't, we actually just identified actually the root problem. So when we did a redesign, when we did like a, an improvement to the site, they weren't just based on sexy best practices that you could read on google you know a hundred ways that you can improve your site you know we didn't do any of that we just simply tried to solve the problem and so by optimizing it for a mobile experience by promoting key information that was actually solving these problems like delivery like pricing we, by actually doing those improvements um we were able to test those designs and then roll out um that live and so yeah like from you know, when we, when we applied those short-term recommendations, um, and this was actually back in, uh, this was for the Black Friday, we moved an eight, like an add to cart um, conversion rate we were trying to do. So at the time it was like 0.8%. 
we had increased it by 5%. And so we'd like really increased the amount of people that were adding this to the cart, which actually, when you do the sort of the maths on that, we actually generated them within less than a year, 250,000 just from that one change. And yeah, the client appreciated it. Yeah. So what I could sense is that you were having a very, not just a general approach, but a very particular approach, like a very contextual approach with respect to the product that you have. And that kind of led you to the solution that how the experience of that app was uh, not suitable for many international customers. I really like that because in user research, either it just becomes about the particular or it just becomes about the general at times. So bringing both these things, keeping the particular, that is the context of the app in mind. Okay, how is the app actually working despite of the general practices? And it's actually quite easy to bullshit in such a niche market that... You know? and, and and don't get me wrong, like there were other things that we did. Um, you know, we we added trust factors, social proof mm-hmm. that all contributed as well. Um, mm-hmm. but but the primary thing was actually solving the problems. Now we we did increase conversions through making the the PDP, like the product page better. You know, we did increase that. We did add in reviews. We added in like, you know, this sort of toolbar that kind of said free delivery, you know, all these sort of bonuses and excelling points. But I'm not saying that all of these best practice guides, you know, because even the Nielsen Norman group are like, these are the best, you know, or um, Baymard Institute. They all do so much work in terms of like, what are the best practices for, you know, a good UX on e-commerce. We weren't ignoring them, but we had to do our own research, right? Um, and that's how we probably got more money. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the particular and the context I'm talking about. And I really like that, uh, how all of it actually tangibly appeared. It's not like some vague theory that we're talking about. This is what you actually did and this is what the numbers showed. So that's yeah. great. And, and it, that, that's what I do love about uh, my work is not just having anecdotal evidence, but actually having yeah. the metrics and the numbers to actually back it up. Um, and to be honest, that's what the business often cares about is numbers. Are we making money? You know, so, um, yeah. And, and, and I hope, you know, for people who are in e-commerce space or even just any product that they're you know, reading all these blogs, you know, don't, don't be afraid to do your own research of your own users, because, you know, what targets experiences for e-commerce is very different from, you know, the, this particular niche product, which was in the sort of the healthcare space, you know, specifically for children with disabilities. And so, yeah, like we can't just apply target and Amazon's best practice and just throw it all in. Um, you know, we've got to look at the actual users in the context. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. It's quite eye-opening. So last time we discussed some things on elimination and how we tend to remember that what are the things that we don't have to do, you know, better because the experience or the pain has been so much that we are like, oh boy, this is not happening the next time. (laughs) Yeah. So any mistakes that you made in your initial projects or any kind of projects 
that have stayed with you and you're like okay i know what not to do in such a situation so anything that you would like to share on those lines oh absolutely for anyone who's new to the field or even the only uxer or only ux researcher in the company um I would try and spend your first month or as much time as you can trying to learn about all the data that you have at the moment, because um, there is data, um, whether that's your product analytics, whether you can get access to that, whether that's anything that has ever been in communication with the cu customer or to the user, um, you know, is there emails, is there, um, you know, live chat? threads is there um, reddit pages twitter you know what what data is there available um and if there isn't that then what are the some of the free tools that you can use um you know because often in startups there isn't budget as you said but it doesn't mean that you can't start to build in these practices and so um, Hotjar is really commonly used, it's maybe overused in some senses, but it is good as a very basis of you being able to kind of visually analyze what's happening for your users. Um, I think there's also Lookback as well. It's a bit more pricier, but um, that's an excellent tool for you to kind of get a basic understanding of what's happening, what is behavior like on the platform. But, but also when it comes to then actually just talking to your users, you know, I would really recommend, um, I think, I think the biggest mistake UX researchers make is maybe not being fully armed in all the different research methods that are available. And so all they ever do is just become like a UX research monkey, <laughs> you know, every day they're just doing the same task, you know, always doing usability testing. Um, but I, I think there are more research methods to draw upon. And so the likes of setting up a strong survey method thinking about other things like creating like a UX score for your company so that on a quarterly basis, you're reporting on the score. So recently I've introduced with my team SuperQ. So SuperQ is like a, I don't know, like an extended version of the MPS score. And that is something that measures uh, loyalty, trust, and sort of credibility, appearance, and usability. And it's, so it's a really good questionnaire that covers all of that. You know, things like that are really effective for kind of keeping the data coming in. Um, yeah, I, I would just say don't restrict yourself to usability testing. So that that's kind of like best advice for someone starting out, I guess. And I think as a UX researcher, it's always good to try and be humble. Uh, something that I really struggle with because um, I'm a big extrovert. I love just diving in and getting hands on and most people appreciate that enthusiasm, but um, I've trodden on people's toes. I've said the wrong things. I've I've embarrassed myself. But, you know, I got like made redundant from. I'm sure some of the stuff. You know, I magically lost my job and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I would just say like, um, you know, there's the soft skills to kind of really work on, and that's something that you can't really learn other through time and through people encouraging you and helping you. So. One of the other things is I've tried to climb the career ladder too quickly in certain periods of my you know, experience. And um, that in some ways has been uncomfortable. And so I would just say, don't like, don't fool people into thinking that you're some expert when actually you are completely out of your comfort zone and you're almost having to kind of maintain a job at a higher level that you can't actually deliver on.
a recruiter will always try and sell you for a higher salary and always try and upsell you to the client because they obviously want to do their job. Um, but, but I would always recommend that you um, start at a company at a lower level, <laughs> just in, even if it's just in terms of a couple of thousand shorter or anything like that to communicate to, you know, the, the client or, you know, to the company that you're wanting to work for is actually, I want to prove my worth in these sort of early six months before I actually, you know, come in and be like, oh, I need all this money. I need all this sort of status. So um, that's just something that I've learned um, that I think has stood me well in the last couple of roles is that I'm, is that there's a, there is a layer of humility, but there's also a learning plan or in like a, a development plan that I have along with that. So I know that in six months time, and I've agreed in six months time or, you know, with 12 months that I will have reached this certain target. And so setting people's expectations is another mistake, I guess, that people don't want to do. Um, and I think, I think not every organization is set up that way to kind of have those open discourse about, you know, yeah. career progression and things, but humble is always good. Um, and then the other thing that I've regretted and that mistakes I've made is, is the times where I've not been learning. And I would recommend that if um, you're, um, there are two reasons to leave a company is one, you're not getting paid to match the work that you're doing. I'm not advocating greed here. I'm just advocating um, knowing your worth. So that's the first reason. And the other one is when you're not learning, you're not being challenged and you're not developing. Um, it's very easy to kind of plateau that you're not actually picking up new skills um, you know, even if it's not even UX related, but you know, you're, you're learning how to do product management and you're, you know, hanging out in Jira, those are good skills. So don't, don't leave just cause it's not UX related. I guess see every company is not like some family that you've got to join and you, you know, dare not offend the family, just see it as a way that you can get paid and a way that you can, uh, keep getting paid. And so do whatever the, you know, your boss needs, you know, um, there's a thing over here um, that we, we've used. I think it comes from the Puritan era in England. Um, but there's, I think, what they call a Protestant work ethic. Um, and so without wanting to kind of bring religion into this conversation, but like there, there's a sort of a mindset of work hard, you know, um, and work hard, under promise, over deliver, all that sort of stuff. Um, but but the, the thing I'm trying to say then is like, uh, know your worth, but always keep learning. So leave a company when you're getting neither of those um and what does that look like well i've recently been challenged to do the sort of the 5am club um which uh is a popular book um it's actually my dad that challenged me on that and he started that and you know he's old like he's, he's my dad you know but he's getting up at five in the morning and he's getting out two hours of his personal work things he wants to get done along with fitness good eating. And I'm like, wow, I, I'm, you know, so sluggish on a morning, you know? And so, you know, what can you do to fast track your career so that you can become a leader and that you can be an expert in your space? And so that's the personal challenge that I have for myself, not burning out, um, not taking on too much, but, you know, making sure that I am learning and, you know, whether that's through a mentor, whether that's through reading UX books, there's a lot of them out there. Um, doing a course, connecting with things like Nielsen Norman Group. Um, so yeah, be humble, know your worth, um, work hard, um, and always learn.
I guess the kind of the sort of foregrounding things that I didn't do <laughs> and now I'm learning them and trying to apply them into my life so um yeah I I, I guess that's kind of a or a, a circle around there yeah okay you put a really good point of that is you know being aware of the all kinds of data you have in the company because that's when I realized that I have to get hold of all kinds of data that my project product manager has at some point of time, like whatever data they have access to and like usually the quantitative data and that's how they study the patterns and make their decisions. I have to have that kind of data. Only then I can make sense of whatever qualitative data I am getting through user tests or uh, user interviews and then yeah. sort of fixing or bringing the pieces of the quant in the core together. And that's how I managed to make my job not a monkey job. And that's yeah. how it remained in interesting. And because I could actually see that the smaller pieces resembled the larger pieces, only just it was the story scaled. And getting that kind of validation in the qualitative and the quantitative data increases your confidence. And absolutely and it helps the team make better decisions you have everything to back it up you have the survey saying that you have the user interview saying that and it's like you, you get more confident in heading running in that direction so that's a really great point that you brought up yeah you're right and i think i think one thing i'd highly recommend everyone to do is create a learning plan at the start of every project because the learning plan doesn't just you just get told what to do and oh you know we need to kind of increase conversion rates or you know make sure this prototype works well um a learning plan puts you in charge as the ux researcher and so the learning plan is a way that you as a team identify the unknowns and you actually acknowledge that there's uh actually things you don't know and so a learning plan is a basically a bullet point list of I need to go and research all of these things. Um, that kind of uh, stabilizes you a bit more because when you actually start thinking about those questions, you know, it's like, um, you know, we don't know why uh, this advanced user group uh, has this behavior. And it's like, whoa, okay, well, what research method am I gonna have to use? And you can almost then just through experience prescribe methods that apply. So in starting at my new role here at Fortius, uh, one of the things I'm working on is creating a, a UX strategy Miro board that thinks about our entire software development process. And I'm, I'm almost pre-applying methods of research against each stage. So it's discovery. What are all the methods that I could ever use on discovery? Um, and then I kind of list them all out. Um, so that, that's, that's pretty useful um, because then when it comes to a project, I'm going to say, okay, what stage of the project is this? Uh, is this final release? Okay, it's more evaluation stuff, right? Rather than maybe, uh, you know, discovery. You know, we're evaluating the existing tool. So then we, you know, apply a related method. So when I create a learning plan, I can just draw from that arsenal of all the tools and software and data that we currently have, all those methods. And then that way, um, you almost use that learning plan as, a, as something to lock down your time that you can then share that with the product owner, share that with the developers and business analysts, or you know even the clients, because you can list who the clients you want to talk to. 
it's one bit of paper um, and it's just a really effective table because you can say, I need 30 people for this survey, or I need five interviews for here and five interviews for here. And it's, it's a really rigid thing. So uh, learning plans will save your ass. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, one more experience, I don't know if you share this or not, just because you are dealing with so many kinds of data and at so many levels, you're yeah. feeling responsible for giving it ideas because uh, you are much more confident or you are much more clear about what will work and what is not going to work. So sure. anything on that aspect, like I know it's sort of not our job to give ideas or suggestions, but at the same time, because we are so much closer to the reality of our users, we actually understand what we want. It's maybe it's just me, but it's like, you know, we can actually do this. You know, this is an opportunity. So like we can also head that way and you could yeah. also share any experience if you have that kind of like where you are suggesting or ideating because you were so close to the users. Yeah, and and this, this there was a really interesting post that I was reading um, recently from one of uh, people high up in Google. I can't remember. I'll, I'll see if I can share the tweet with you um, where they, they were talking about design thinking um, because design thinking was originally planned to make everyone a designer where everyone can be part of a set method of um, collaborative design where it's not just a designer off in a room doing their own thing, coming up with solutions, but it's the whole team coming together and sharing their expertise. Um, and the article was saying that um, that is actually watered down the quality of design often because it's kind of being led by committee or it's just um, almost uh, removing the need for designers and you know experienced professionals who are good at their craft. And so it was a really interesting article. And so to come back to that point of like how we as a UX researcher can be not just in a cupboard somewhere doing our research, looking at spreadsheets, you know, do, doing thematic analysis or whatever, that we can actually be a little bit more hands-on. And so it was an interesting conversation. I don't think there's a straightforward answer as such. Hopefully through your research, you have engaged with stakeholders that you've spoken to the customer support team that you've spoken to the designers the clients the customers you've talked to the developers right and so you know as much as you can you know you understand the service um not always but hopefully hopefully you have that understanding and so hopefully you have just as much a right as anyone else to actually be at that table um, because you have one job to be the advocate for the user as well, right? And so, um, yeah, was it like imposter syndrome that you kind of were feeling of just like, I don't feel I can kind of share? Was that what you were saying? Is kind of like an issue that you were having? No, it's like uh, you, you feel your primary job is to advocate for the users, but at the right. same time, it is to engage the stakeholders equally. And Absolutely it's because product manager it's their job to own the product and take it forward that that's their yeah. job description but right. my job description is more like advocate for the users and help the stakeholders make the right decision and somewhere in that you know this uh, 
we lose a great opportunity for actually ideating great steps or great features which can be left behind so yeah. not only just getting a seat at the table but also you know as a user researcher uh, because i know this is what people can face uh, but also giving the right kinds of suggestions so that you build more of your trust yeah. is equally important and that wouldn't yeah. have been a concern if user research was you know embedded in uh, like a startup culture or anything like an organization culture since the beginning but it yeah. comes quite late and it is still in its very foundational stages so that's yeah. where... no and and i can i can see that you're talking from experience here um i would just say that um yeah stakeholder engagement as early as possible is like asking them what does success look like for you um there's also another thing of um i guess we're not trying to suggest things right we're not trying to kind of give our own ideas though there's maybe time for that but we're, we're all we're trying to do is just highlight the problems and if you have a product designer or you have a product owner um you know let them bring that more to life but in some ways, as a UX researcher, all we're doing is we're just putting ideas into people's minds. You can also play the card of, um, I've got the data, you do not, so listen to me. <laughs> it's not um, always a popular one, but what you can do is share the data to people and walk away and let them own the data. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's sometimes a really good way to kind of manage the um, what we call the hippo. Uh, hippo is not referring to an animal living in, you know, muddy water, but uh, hippo stands for highest paid person's opinion. I don't know whether you've heard that before, but it's a good one. So uh, you will always, you will always get a hippo uh, in, in the sort of meeting environment in a, in a meeting room. There's like, okay, we're going to do this. And no one says anything. No one disagrees because they're the highest paid person's opinion. Um, the way that you get the highest paid person's opinion is you give them data and you uh, prove stuff. Um, you know, you prove theories, right? Everyone in the room has got a hypothesis, but you're the one who've actually gone and, you know, tested those hypotheses, right? And that you're able to go back and say, well, actually, here's the science behind what I did. Here's why that there's statistical significance behind what I've done. And we can be confident that this is a better solution than yours. Not because it's about ego, <laughs> but it's because the, these is what the users are requiring, or this is going to be the quickest win for us or the highest value. And it's like, well, how do you know it's going to be the quickest, easiest thing to do? Well, because you've talked to the developers, you understand how much work is required to deliver that solution. And then you go back to the highest paid person's opinion and you say, well, this is the highest value. And he's like, oh, you know, I think we should do this. And it's like, well, here's what the technical is saying and here's what the client or, you know, the user is saying that that is a really, you know, that they're a really bad, bad leader if they ignore both of those parts. Right. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that just comes through time as you learn more about the product, as you learn more about how to manage the team that you eventually do get that seat at the table. Um, and yeah, just, just keep going on that, but um, try and avoid your own opinion um, because, there are more clever people in the room than you probably uh, who know more technical or, you know, might have sales team who, you know, who they just want, you know, this is what the client wants. This is what the user wants. And, you know, unless you have data, uh, unless you equip your team with data, um, you're just going to be in the cave, you know, just working on your spreadsheets. Um, so good luck to that. Yeah. Yeah.
corporate world and its ways. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's it's good fun. It's really good fun if you really embrace it and build good relationships with people. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, I now have I become the key person when it comes to our onboarding tool called Chameleon, and now I'm getting like at least once a week some department saying, "Hey, Jonah, can we use this to the site?" And so. Try and do set yourself up as the advocate or as the you know expert in this area by communicating the value it will bring to other teams. So I'm doing the net promoter score stuff. Technically, that's more marketing and sales and more commercial. It's not a great UX stat, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll fight anyone who disagrees. So why am I actually learning all this? Well, there's a lot of data in there. There's, you know, 64,000 entries that we've had in the last three years so that's good data but i'm putting myself that as kind of the the lead for that because then i can then start to share out all of these insights that are infused with ux mindset um but then i'm giving that to the teams and say here you go here's our recommendation and then they're like great you've just saved me like three weeks of work (laughs) so try try and find ways of sharing data um i'm going off topic sorry (laughs) no it's actually pretty uh, like practical and that that is what happened it's one of been it's one of my learning experiences it's that i'm not just advocating for the users my job is also to nudge the team in the right direction and that's yeah. where that hippo concept or not just suggesting suggesting outrank but actually nudging yeah. the team that okay just we can change our angle a bit so yeah, yeah that's also an important part of our jobs so thank you for shedding light on that. It was a great conversation, Jonah. It kind of went into a direction I did not expect, but I could relate to it so much. And I know that someone else is also going to face the same problems on a level that is actually practiced in the real world. This is how the things work. And one should be aware of them, especially if someone is going in. So they at least have an idea, okay, this is what is going to happen not only users, but what are all the other communication channels that I need to make personally. And right now it might sound like, okay, that is just general corporate talk, but the role of user and UX researcher gets a bit tricky. So thank you so much for bringing those points up and sharing your experiences, the resources that helped you, your mentoring and your experiences of working as a user researcher and all the things you discovered. And again, the practical aspect of it has been the most impressive, how you applied them and what you reaped out of it. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, Like I feel like I'm only just getting started in my career in many ways. I'm still learning so much, but um, I'm glad to be able to share what I've got so far. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we also need to have some point where we can relate. So we tend to just take from people who are hugely experienced and that's absolutely phenomenal because, you know, uh, all these podcasts I've taken with Debbie Levitt, Darren Hurt, these are like, I'm sitting in a private lecture in a college and they are just imparting me with all this wisdom. But being able to relate to someone and, you know, sharing those kind of experiences it's very helpful and it's very practical at the same time. So getting your UX education and wisdom on all levels is absolutely thrilling. So thank you so much for adding to my experience. My pleasure. My pleasure.
and yeah all the best with this podcast i hope it goes well